This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to the show East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. So pleased we could have the mayor back with us today. Madam Mayor, front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, <clears throat> excuse me, Dayline East Hampton, Fire Damages Tavern on the Hill Restaurant. Front page story, rather large headline, deservedly so. No one injured. We give thanks for that. Reopening expected. Still, the report in the Gazette and on other in other media indicates that this fire at the Tavern on the Hill was a serious fire. Uh, it's an iconic restaurant uh, in East Hampton. And I'm wondering what you can tell us, what you know about the cause of the fire, the damage to the building, whether it will reopen, and the well, the future of that, that restaurant. Yeah, the cause of the fire. Oh, good morning, Bill and Monty. It's good to talk again. It's been a while. Uh, but the cause of the fire, we're still investigating. The state has come in to lend a hand and looking at, you know, the, the, uh, the site of ignition being on the side of, of the restaurant at this point. No foul play is suspected. Um, and it, it, you're right. It's the fire was, you know, in the most insidious way, quite spectacular. It burned very hot. It was burning very quick. Um, East Hampton fire was able to slow it down and start to contain, but because of its intensity, um, mutual aid was brought in from Holyoke and Northampton, I think Southampton as well. Um, the entire restaurant was not affected, but this one spot was. Um, if you've been there, it's a pretty tight setup. Um, I spoke with uh, the owner, uh, one of the owners, uh, the day after the fire, and they were still kind of reeling and picking up, but they're going to reopen. And uh, knowing Amy and Larry, they're making that plan right now. But the fire was extremely intense, extremely hot, was on the side of the building where they're going to really have to check out structural integrity and whatnot. And that's a part of the investigation going on now. There was, uh, there were no injuries. And None. so a blessing in that regard. Yes. I, I, you just mentioned something that, that I would like to follow up on. <clears throat> this is in the Gazette report as well. It says the second alarm brought in mutual aid from several other fire departments, including Holyoke, Northampton, Southampton, South Hadley. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there? Could you explain a bit about the mutual aid uh, uh, compact or uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, what those legal considerations are? How that works between fire departments and police departments too? Yeah, um, it's a, a contract between municipalities or, um, <clears throat> that gives extra support in public safety. We also have similar agreements in the Department of Public Works, where it's a matter of uh, local uh, municipality has X amount of equipment or may be drawn to two different emergencies at the same time. And there's almost, you know, like a, it's a, a very simplistic way to, to describe it. It's like a phone tree. So depending on the location, certainly in the city, um, and equipment needed, and it goes through, you know, to, to Holyoke and Northampton, South Hadley, to back it up. And, and that's for several reasons. Uh, one, needed more capacity to fight the fire, but also um, exhaustion from um, just the flames themselves with fire, uh, and even with recreations of um, major uh, accidents that the that EMS and the police will be involved. You want fresh eyes. You want um, more eyes looking like in the in the time with the um, in the fire with Tavern on the Hill, looking down the mountain to the side, making sure ashes aren't going anywhere, wetting down those um, those areas, which was a significant concern with the fire on Tavern on the Hill because it's on the side of Mount Tom, and uh, we're in a level three drought. Uh, so, you know, really well handled by all of the of the departments, but they come in and, and vice versa. Um, you know, there was a time during COVID where 
most of the Hadley Fire Department had COVID. East Hampton covered that with help of surrounding towns. Um, it's, you know, you know, all for one and one for all. Um, and in Western Mass, especially in Hampshire County, those bonds are, are very tight. Does this happen? I mean, this may be a silly question, but I'm wondering how often this happens, this invocation of this mutual aid compact. It's not frequent, but it's very common. Um, you know, it's not, um, I, I, it doesn't happen every day. Maybe it happens once every 10 days. Um, but, you know, that kind of with COVID, it happened more especially on the EMS side, because they were really, you know, functioning as emergency medical service, but also as triage, as people were ill in their homes and, you know, had um, concerns, uh, maybe slipped, needed some help. Um, But it's something we rely on, uh, both in fire police and DPW, uh, to get things contained, to fix things uh, more quickly, uh, right at the time of whatever the incident is. Uh, but it's a part of our, you know, continuity of government operations plans um, of this is where we would go or, you know, in the case of, of COVID or a big fire or an ongoing maybe chemical spill. Um, it's, they train together. They work together. Um, it is a part of the operation. This is not a one-off, oh, there's an emergency. Let's all, you know, come together. Madam Mayor, you just mentioned that there was danger from this fire because of the drought here in western Massachusetts, which is severe. Uh, And I think we're at the highest level of drought uh, warnings that the state can issue. Uh, I would wondering if you could share with us if there are other ways or how the drought is affecting your city. Yeah, I I mean, it's it's really palpable um, unless. Uh, water is a part of uh, your profession, safe farming or agriculture, uh, raising stock. Uh, you sh- you are not supposed to be using uh, water for your lawns um, or your plants. It's uh, under any circumstances. It's not okay at night. Um, the sprinklers have to be out. We're asking folks to use as little water as possible. Um, as far as in their home, uh, you know, washing dishes and, and whatnot. Um, every little drop at this point counts. You're starting to see the levels around the Oxbow go down quite dramatically. Um, Manhattan River, which are our two telltales in East Hampton, um, are really, the, the levels are dropping. You can see the muddy, dried out rocks. Uh, we, you know, folks feel like, oh, well, we ought rain. You know, that really intense rain, um, a, you know, a week or so ago. But while every, rain, every drop does help, those, those really intense downpours uh, actually do very little and are likely to cause erosion, uh, which we saw in some of our trails because it's so fast, so intense, and then it goes down and the water, is, I mean, the ground is very dry. So, what about East Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I, I I didn't mean to interrupt, but I would like to know, what is the story with regard to East Hampton's water supply for drinking, uh, uh, for essential use of water? Is is that in any danger? Uh, is, is, in, is East Hampton in any danger of running out of water? No. No. Our, our drinking water supply is um, robust, and we see no danger to it. The question on the using water or the the ask of using water um, carefully has more to just, you know, help restore our, I'm sorry, help uh, maintain the stock we have now. We do um, sell water to Southampton and uh, we want to make sure we can be good neighbors and help them as as well. So we're not going to wait until there's an issue with the drinking water supply. We're we're acting and protecting it now, as we always have. And the water supply is this underground uh, reservoir? I'm trying to remember it because, of course, this was a big issue yeah. not so many years ago. So there's the Barnes Aquifer that's out in the Plains section um, along the border with um, Southampton, rather large. 
And then we have a series of wells um, around town. Not all of them are, are used right now. But we're moving to a point because of sustained droughts where it is groundwater becoming the majority of our water supply. And that, that'll continue that direction. Um, and that makes us more dependent on rain. So the rain's coming down and it's going, you know, collecting in the, in the aquifer or um, in catchment basements. But it's coming from the rain. It's not as, as it used to come up from the aquifer itself or springs. So the aquifer is not replenishing itself from below ground. It is now dependent on rainwater to replenish this supply. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, it's moving in that direction. Um, yes, it's not. I, I don't know what the mix, like the percent of, but it's definitely going in that where groundwater is becoming our main source of water. And that, you know, that kind of triggers a whole bunch of other interventions, but also water use, how, how we're watching the supply, uh, where we're measuring, uh, how we pump it through the city. Um, you know, it, you, it's a part of climate resiliency due to climate change. Uh, so we're reacting to that slowly but surely, changing over some of our infrastructure so the water most, in the most efficient manner um, can be cleaned and put back in our pipes. I will say that our water is still delicious. Um, Award-winning. Award-winning. Oh, yeah. Two years. Two years. What's the award again? 20, uh, best water in the country. 2012 and 2015. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's I go to. Water, I go to East Hampton all the time just to drink the water because the water in Northampton is not great. I no comment on that, but uh, we are. <laughs> you know, I always encourage. I always encourage people to come drink with us. <laughs> yes, indeed. We are speaking with East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. We're going to come back with some very important topics to talk about on the other side, and we'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. We are talking random whites. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. This is from a company called La Pere. Gros Monsang. Grow, apparently, when you see it written, it looks like you're drinking something called Gros Monsang. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's Grow. In the past, has mostly been relegated to bulk wine or distilling grapes for brandy. Petit Monsang, which I think means like little guy, and Gros Monsang means big guy. It almost has like a dessert wine feel to it. It's susceptible to botrytis, so they do mix sweet wines. This tastes like it almost might have that, which is like... It's essentially, they call it Noble yeah, Rock, it, which is my next yeah, band name. So Don't great. steal it. We, we, so mentioned, weird. <laughs> we mentioned it was a brandy grape, and this wine does taste like a brandy. Yeah. Drink this before dinner. Maybe drink it after dinner. Because it's a brandy-ish kind of feel yeah, to it. This yeah, is a unique it's one. very different. 1899. It is organic grapes and certified organic. What's the name of this one again? La Pere. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. 
Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the city of Northampton. The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the city of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on vaccine clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, pediatric Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson & Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages five and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19, and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation on this Mayor's Monday with East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle. Madam Mayor, there was a story, maybe a couple of stories, in the Daily Hampshire Gazette recently about a proposal relating to uh, so-called pro-life or anti-abortion pregnancy counseling centers in East Hampton. It's a proposal that has been made in front and before the East Hampton City Council. It's been sent back to committee think twice now. Uh, it's an uh, interesting uh, proposal. Uh, it also is a proposal that has uh, statewide implications because, among other things, uh, from the Boston Globe this morning, pro-life pregnancy centers shouldn't be allowed to manipulate women. This from the editorial board starts uh, state, law, state, state lawmakers, and they're not talking on, for local uh, 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 or local uh, uh, governments or municipalities to do this, but state lawmakers, says the Globe's editorial board, should bar deceptive advertising by organizations that seek to draw in women interested in abortion and doing so under false pretenses. Can you tell us where this proposal stands in East Hampton and your comments on it? Yeah, so the proposal is still in committee. Um, where I stand on it, I've, I've said very plainly that I would um, veto it if passed by city council. Um, the Globe captures my feelings um, very well, where I believe it is a function of the state um, and to uh, reach out or to close that loophole around not-for-profits, deceptive advertising, um, regardless of of what the topic is and i feel this strongly falls under it um i somewhat resent as a woman this uh, idea about um confusing or duping or you know deceiving women as if we need protection i think that's where this whole kind of political crazy starts we don't need protection we have our own minds what we don't have is universal and unfettered reproductive health care. Um, and I find that totally different than an, a local ordinance looking at deceptive pro um, practices in healthcare care um, and in general services businesses. Uh, the, a local municipality, that's just not where our focus is. Um, and I think that the state officials and the AG and all the AG candidates have gone on record to say that they are or will address that as a priority. So you're saying that the unfundamental idea is one that you support, but that this is a matter for the state to address, not local municipalities? Yes. Oh. And the proposal itself, do you expect it? I'm not sure if this is a fair question to ask to make predictions okay. about what the city council will do, but do you have any information on whether the, you think, or your, maybe you could give us your political judgment, whether the city council is apt to... Uh, pass this ordinance or not? Um, it seems the, um, in the very beginning, uh, there was a request for legal review um, that occurred um, verbally, and then we just got the written um, uh, memo on the concerns and strengths of the ordinance. I do see politically there is um, a taste for it to pass. I think folks in general, but also especially around the overturning of Roe v. Wade, 
um, feel the need to do something um, to make a stand um, and and say that that's totally unacceptable. And I appreciate that. Um, and I myself, you know, was on the advisory board of the Western Mass Abortion Fund. I was one of the first mayors to come out for the ROAC and lobby hard for that. Um, I think that there are other things that we can do as a community um, other than to vote an ordinance in which actually has no teeth. Um, but I do think out of frustration and outrage, there is a sentiment among the council to pass it. Let's go on. Well, and which you said, and if it does, you'll veto it. I will. Okay. Um, I also have this question about it, whether or not uh, uh, how local municipalities would uh, uh, seek to regulate uh, advertising that goes far beyond the uh, mm. uh, municipality itself and whether that's part of the Home Rule Amendment, whether there is there's actually authority to do that. So there are a lot of questions. Um, I, yeah, we, we no, don't, that's one of mine. Mm-hmm. L- let's go on. Um, uh, one other matter involving the city council uh, there is a housing, there's a dispute about housing going on in East Hampton, I believe. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, you know, um, it's, it's a, a quiet, I would say, dispute. Um, we have three schools that are now vacant because our new school, pre-K to 8, Mountain View School is open. It is beautiful. Um, I encourage people to come to the mid-September ribbon cutting. Really just a tremendous job. Uh, and we have three buildings all over 100 years old um, that bookend our downtown area. Uh, over the last 18 months, a resident-led uh, work group has gone through fresh data as well as all of the, we've done four plans to lead up to the reuse of these buildings, a housing and production plan, uh, downtown st- a downtown strategy, open space plan, as well as local rapid recovery plans. Um, and of all of those studies and lots of public input, it was actually quite fun. Uh, this group of residents sat down regularly over the last 18 months with a uh, housing consultant and put together a draft request for proposals for prospective developers of these schools. Um, we made the RFP uh, very structured a developer can come in and bid on one or all three or two. And throughout it, as in those studies, over and over again, it's about affordability. It's about housing needed to get on the market uh, immediately. Uh, that uh, draft RFP was put to city council and referred to committee in May. In May. Um, and the committee has yet to take action on it. There was one walkthrough of a building, but there's not been any follow-up public conversation. We were hoping we, you know, candidly really kept to a tight timeline so we could get this draft RFP to city council by June, and we were able to do that so they could act, hopefully over the summer or start the process at the end of July so we would look at a release of that RFP the end of August, early September. And uh, that's not going to happen. It's still in committee. I'm not sure when the committee um, really gives its recommendations in the votes. In the city, the RFP for these property comes from the mayor's office as a draft and then goes um, to city council and committee to see if they approve of the draft, if they're making any changes and then return it back to the mayor, and uh, we tighten it up a little bit and, and put it out to bid. Um, and the bid, the, the RFP, the request for proposal, this is for the development of these buildings for housing? Yeah. Uh, yes. uh, yeah. So it's housing, and they're also, based on um, community interests, there are a couple, like, community space and whatnot, but over and over again, from the studies and the work of this resident work group, it was housing. People desired housing. We need housing. Um, these schools are perfect for housing. We've had um, the state mass development, mass housing, um, as well as, I forgot the other one, um, housing under, 
Undersecretary Jennifer Maddox came out to walk the properties to give us some ideas around financing, what was doable, what wasn't doable, because we wanted to put a very strong RFP that would capture all, you know, give flexibility that community elements could be put in, but overwhelmingly these three properties, it said housing, 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 housing. And this is going to be affordable housing? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, it would be, yep, mixed income. Mm-hmm. Can you stay with us a few more minutes? We need to take a break here, but I have a couple more topics I want to talk to you about. Can you stay? Do you have another few minutes? I do have a, yep. Okay, thank yep. you very much. And we tell our listeners after that, we're going to be talking to Attorney John Pucci. How about that lawyer who said, hey, Trump gave you all the material. No, there's nothing here in Mar-a-Lago. We're going to talk about that as well. <laughs> we'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The suspect in an alleged kidnapping that took place Friday night in Northampton is now in custody. Police arrested the 34-year-old man Saturday afternoon, charging him with kidnapping of a minor by a relative and resisting arrest. The suspect will be arraigned in court today. The towns of Buckland and Shelburne could soon share a police department. The two towns have reached an agreement to share the services of Police Chief Greg Bardwell. Bardwell has been Shelburne's police chief for five years and has been working for Buckland since April 1st. The new agreement will split his pay and benefits down the middle between the two towns. According to the Greenfield Recorder, the towns have opted to create an official contract between them. The partnership would not be the first in Franklin County. Leverett and Wendell share a police department, as do Leiden and Bernardston. A man faces multiple firearms and drug charges after being pulled over in Hadley early Friday morning. Officers stopped the vehicle and were given a false name by a passenger. After identifying the man as Van Shriver, he was found to have an active warrant. Officers searching the vehicle found a loaded handgun, crack, cocaine, and carfentanil. The Community Action Pioneer Valley in Greenfield has been awarded a $160,000 grant from the state to help former incarcerated residents receive training for manufacturing jobs. A total of $1.68 million in reentry workforce development demonstration program grants was awarded to 14 organizations by the Baker administration. Mixture of sun and clouds today, low humidity, relatively comfortable air, a high of 80 to 84. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight lows of 52 to 58. Another partly sunny day here tomorrow, a high in the low 80s. Chance for a scattered shower on Wednesday with a high in the upper 70s. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El gobernador de Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, promulgó el jueves un importante proyecto de ley sobre el cambio climático que pretende acercar al Estado a su objetivo de cero emisiones netas de gases de efecto invernadero para 2050. El proyecto de ley fomenta el desarrollo de la energía solar y eólica marina y otorga cierta autoridad local para limitar el uso de combustibles fósiles en proyectos de construcción. También aumentaría a $3,500 dólares el reembolso por la compra y arrendamiento de ciertos vehículos de pasajeros de cero emisiones. Ofrecería mil dólares adicionales a los compradores que comercializan un vehículo a gasolina y exigiría que todas las ventas de vehículos nuevos sean de cero emisiones a partir de 2035. Además, el proyecto de ley permitiría que las tierras de cultivo se utilicen para paneles solares siempre que no impidan los usos agrícolas u hortícolas. En otras informaciones, el FBI y el Departamento de Seguridad Nacional de Estados Unidos advirtieron a las agencias de aplicación de la ley y el orden público sobre sobre un aumento en las amenazas luego de una búsqueda en la casa del expresidente Donald Trump en Florida la semana pasada. Entre las preocupaciones citadas en el memorando estaba una amenaza de colocar una supuesta bomba sucia frente a la sede del FBI y emitir llamados generales a la guerra civil y la rebelión armada. La mayoría de las amenazas ocurren en línea, dijo el boletín según los informes. La orden se hizo pública el viernes después de que la búsqueda sin precedentes del lunes mostró que el republicano Donald Trump tenía 11 juegos de documentos clasificados en su casa y que el Departamento de Justicia tenía una causa probable para realizar la búsqueda basada en posibles violaciones de la ley de espionaje. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. 
And on this Mayor's Monday, we continue our conversation with East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. Madam Mayor, going back some months now, there was a big controversy in East Hampton about words that you spoke uh, to a class and to a student involved in preparing for a uh, debate. Uh, you were roundly criticized for those words. Um, uh, there was a claim of racism. There was also an uh, F-bomb in there, which you had poly and you apologized for both of those things. You also called for the entire uh, uh, video to be released. So this was a big deal in East Hampton, big deal with the school committee and in the community. Uh, we're now looking back. I'd like to know how you think this was resolved, uh, whether it is resolved, and what you think the ramifications have been. Yeah, I mean, quickly, I'll say that there wasn't what, – what I called for was all of the audio um, to be released. Yes, the audio. I'm the, sorry. And this was the We the People uh, debate team um, who went on to be uh, win 12th in the nation. Um, they're just amazing. And I go in almost every year and to work with uh, debate the debate teams or teams of three that take on different constitutional questions. And when I was in there, we were talking, they had just answered the questions, the knowledge is unbelievable. And the panel of three was a, a young white woman, a young Tibetan woman, and um, a young man. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know how he would identify. Um, and I talked about making space when they spoke um, and to consider uh, that, you know, they're walking into this room and the judges automatically are going to take points away because of the way they talk, with the way they look, and um, said very distinctly as on the, the audio, you know, you don't sound white. And to loop in, you know, do the judges care? Um, and then, uh, you know, had uh, that session, the mom and uh, young Tibetan um, young lady <clears throat> reached out um, and, you know, felt that that was racism. It was wrong. They were very hurt by that. Um, to have somebody in their community of position of mayor saying that. And um, I, that is not for me to dispute or uh, qualify, uh, you know, the feeling, the attempt, the act of being called a racist or whatnot, or are those of the, the beholder and those of uh, offended. Um, and not for me to qualify it, but to make amends. And I did that. The school committee... Um, as well as some of the city councilors, some op-ed, really called for me to do work um, around self-reflective work, uh, anti-bias work. Um, really was the school committee wanted me to come to an executive session. Um, and there was outrage and there was real hurt and, and I caused hurt and uh, folks to get really upset. Um, the apology in men that I still focus on is with um, the family, um, the Tibetan family, and, and have talked to them. I talked to them uh, right after I found out about the incident, which was, uh, or, and how it was taken a few days later. Um, and there's some interesting politics behind it. Uh, but I focus on the harm, the hurt um that were heard as and then therefore are racist by me and and working working through that uh is this matter still ongoing do you think it has been resolved in some way no i i mean not purposely unresolved um but if anything the two takeaways i take of this is one you know, when we as white people start defining racism in action or in comments, um, thinking that we are defending those, you know, uh, black, brown, indigenous folks, um, that's a form of racism. It's not for us to define racism in real time on the behalf of somebody who has been historically oppressed. Um, I would say that. And I'd also um, say, again, this is a series of actions and comments 
in the face of a municipal government that is facing a severe housing crunch in their system, especially those who are most economically disenfranchised and oppressed, but as well as black, brown, and indigenous people. Um, are, you know, we are 88% white, um, but not all white. And, and quite honestly, cities and towns, regardless of what those percentages are, um, should have openings and, and push down barriers to have anyone who wants to live where they want to live. Um, and I know that that's not, not the case, but this, this idea that the, the school committee wanted me to come to executive session and then afterwards said, you know, we wanted to ask her questions. We were hurt. She didn't meet to us. Well, you know, with all due respect, it's not about the school committee. Um, and they don't have the jurisdiction, um, you know, to bring me into it. My position is into executive um, session. And I asked for it all to be done in public and they declined. Um, what I said and the cause, you know, the harm it caused, is something as a community I want upfront, open, and transparent as possible. The work continues. Uh, since 2020, we've had the People's Institute for Survival and Success um, come in and do undoing, uh, undoing Racism, which is a, um, has been in the top 20 of anti-racism trainings for the Department of Justice. They're coming back in September. Uh, to do a full 18-hour workshop with members of the community who are interested. And then we have debriefs um, for everybody who attended and um, to talk through the tools that we've learned, but the stumbles. Um, yeah, and that, that's, I'm trying to think, in 2019, I brought in an equity consultant around economic development and housing, and then 2020, the training started. Um, and they continue, just like what, you know, when you talk about resolution, um, it, it's not a one-stop resolution and, and owning, you know, what I said. It's, it's not a one-day thing. It's not a one-year thing. It's, it's ongoing. It's undoing, but also recreating and making space in the face of generations of brutal oppression. We are going to leave it there. We will certainly continue all conversations about all these topics that we have covered with East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle in our future segments with the mayor. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Really appreciate it. We are going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Attorney John Pucci. We're going to talk about that lawyer. No, there's no material here. There's no documents in Mar-a-Lago. Is he in some trouble? How about Trump? We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley Co-op. Hey everyone, it's Ariane, the co-pilot from the Cambridge Connection. Hold on, wait a minute. Where's Gordon? This is his commercial. Oh well, I guess we're here to talk to our listeners about Cambridge Credit Counseling, the company in partnership with your new show, The Cambridge Connection. So what shall we tell him? Hold on, Ariane. It's Tina Marie. I think we should remind everyone that asking for financial wellness advice on student loans, buying a home, or even paying off credit card debt isn't anything to be embarrassed about. It takes a lot of courage to ask for help. You got it, Tina Marie. And Cambridge Credit Counseling offers so much more than just helping to manage credit card debt. That's why Gordon is hosting the Cambridge Connection radio show every week. It's all about empowering people to pick up the phone and ask for help. Hey, Ariane, is it my turn now? 
<laughs> Oops, sorry, Gordy. We're out of time, but if listeners need some financial wellness advice, there's always time to call 1-800-CAMBRIDGE. That's 1-800-CAMBRIDGE. Forbes Library is Northampton's public library with an amazing circulating collection of over 325,000 items, including bestsellers, recent releases, tons of movies, large print books, e-books, audiobooks, and an extensive collection for kids and teens featuring board books, picture books, chapter books, and graphic novels. The library even has musical instruments that you can borrow. You can search the library's catalog online at ForbesLibrary.org, and while you're there, you can request a card and place items on hold. The library's website is also a great place to find out about upcoming programs and events which are always free and open to the public. We have story times, book clubs for kids, teens, and adults, poetry discussions, film discussions, author talks, concerts, movies for grown-ups, and so much more. Visit ForbesLibrary.org for more information and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to keep up with all the latest happenings. It's your library. Make the most of it. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is a special edition of Crime and Punishment with attorney John Pucci, who is a partner in Bucky Richardson, criminal defense attorney, and prior to that, a an attorney with the United States Attorney's Office, head of the Springfield Office of the U.S. Attorneys, which is part of the Department of Justice, of course. John, everyone's saying, look, the, the FBI went, not everyone, but a lot of people are saying the FBI executed a search warrant. It was not a, quote, raid. It was the execu lawful execution of a search warrant conducted by the FBI, approved by a judge, a federal judge, uh, after a review of the content of the affidavit, the application for the search warrant, it was conducted lawfully and appropriately, as far as anyone can tell. And many people who want to see Trump in jail say, ha-ha, we got him, we got him, we had top-secret uh, material and documents they shouldn't have had, it's clear, there's a violation of law, throw him in jail. And my response to that is, could we wait a second and so someone figure out exactly how, what what crime has been committed and how it would be proved. John, tell us about that. So, <clears throat> the critical central piece that remains is an investigation, uh, a thorough and complete investigation, tracing the, the physical tra transfer of the boxes from the White House to Mar-a-Lago, who was involved, who wrote on them top secret, who read them, uh, who gave the order that they be removed apparently illegally from the White House, uh, who was responsible for that. And then track traipsing through the long, almost two year negotiation that apparently happened between the Department of Justice and uh, the White House staff and Trump to get the records, which culminated in frustration and a belief that the White House Trump was uh, obstructing justice and not going to produce the records led to the search warrant. And then the search warrant yielded 14 boxes of, I'm going to call them unknown records, because the public, me, you, even Monty, do not know what those records really were. They're all Dan Fogelberg <laughs> records. <laughs> we do. We do know that they. I had, want him on the jury. <laughs> I want him on the jury. We had there was stamped top secret. Um, they had classification notices right on. They were clearly marked. I mean, we may not. We don't know the content, but we do know the classification of some of the that material, right? And we know it's illegal to have that outside a secure facility, uh, where literally those documents can only be viewed in a secure place under uh, very meticulous uh, uh, rules about who can see the material and when and how. And there it is lying around in Mar-a-Lago somewhere. Right. So the question is, you know, who, who knew that um, and who knew they were there? One thing we know about Trump is he wasn't a detail guy. He's not a guy that would have taken a carton of documents and read them. He just he wouldn't even stand still to get the national security debriefings every morning about threats to America. He would not read those debriefings. So you I guarantee you, I swear to you, there's my guarantee. He didn't read the 14 boxes of documents. So you're starting from that premise. What did he know? 
Um, and you got to do an investigation to find out what he knew. Well, how about the lawyer who writes an affidavit saying, there's nothing here, we have nothing that you'd be interested in, and that turns out to be a lie. Well, wait a second, maybe not a lie, it's wrong. What do we make of that? And then we, of course, want to say, well, that information must have come from Trump, but how do we know that? And how would you get past the lawyer and the attorney-client privilege to get to Trump? Even if it did, the information did come from the former president. Well, the, the, the lawyer clearly made a serious mistake, either by lying or a mistake of judgment by not knowing what he was talking about when he signed this affidavit, because it appears to be false to a certainty. That is, that his verification that there was no top secret information there, by all accounts, was false. And so... That was wrong. That, it was wrong. We don't know if he was... You know, we don't know if he did an investigation. We don't know who he talked to. We don't know what his data and assertions were based on, I don't think. Right. We just don't know. So it begs an investigation. So all of the people that are making comments about what should be done and how he should be prosecuted and maybe that he shouldn't, Trump shouldn't be prosecuted are just seizing on political wins because there has not been a complete investigation and a thorough downloading of that investigation to the public as a basis for those opinions. Uh, let me let me picture let me let me conjure up a picture here for you and for you to think about. If you were representing Trump, because I wouldn't do it, you would say <laughs> stand in front of a jury and you would say, ladies and gentlemen, jury, on the last day of this administration, whether you accept it or not, whether you believe it or was going to happen or not, Donald Trump thought he was not leaving the White House. He thought he, the, the election would be overturned. He would remain there. And everything he had there, where he had been living for four years, all of his personal stuff, his clothes, his love letters to his lovers, his whatever it is, to, to, to whatever, to, to, you know, everything personal and everything professional was going to stay in the White House. And then the moment comes that he's kick, effectively kicked out and he says, take my stuff, take those boxes, take this, take that. And somebody loads them up and takes them to Mar-a-Lago in the not knowing that they're really presidential records, not having read the presidential records law, which requires they stay in the White House. And lo and behold, they show up in Mar-a-Lago where they're put in the basement and nobody thinks about them for a long time. And, and that's, the, that's the moment they leave and the moment the actual violation of law begins. And it's a chaotic scene. Trump is, does not know what's in the records. He just says, take all my stuff out, because besides the 15 boxes, I'm sure a lot of other stuff went out in the chaos of that day. Um, and so that's the setting in which some decisions were made. As to the lawyer, and who knew what is unknown about the transmission, the transfer, the marking uh, of the records, it's unknown. Unless the lawyer has said in his affidavit, and I don't believe he did, how he acquired the information that all of the information had been, all the documents had been turned over to the uh, National Archives, how would any investigator uh, uh, be allowed to uh, speak to the lawyer and how or why could the lawyer say where the information came from? He couldn't reveal the secrets of his client. That's confidential attorney-client privilege information. And he probably couldn't reveal information about his investigation, whatever it was, because that would be work product and that would be confidential and privileged. So how, does, how would an investigation get beyond the lawyer himself? And, and if the lawyer is was telling the truth as far as he knew it, how is he liable for any anything? Well, we'll all find out together. I mean, what I can one thing I can say about the lawyer is Trump has a long history of hiring very poor lawyers. And so, you know, people may not realize this. I think most people do. There are plenty of bad lawyers in the world. But, you know, he, one of his primary lawyers was Rudy Giuliani, who has become a public fool. And uh, he relied on him. He still relies on him. Uh, anybody that would hire Rudy Giuliani as their lawyer has an automatic insanity plea available to them. <laughs> Sidney Powell is another of his lawyers who's a complete fraud and a total liar who still uh, uh, carries his flag. 
And so this, whoever this lawyer is, and I don't know who it is, uh, is one in a long line of terrible lawyers uh, who make terrible decisions and um, say things that are completely untrue. So it doesn't surprise me that a Trump lawyer would sign an affidavit that's false. Michael Cohen went to prison. He's another one of them. Um, he never could hire good lawyers for two reasons. He was often uh, uh, a difficult, a very difficult client, and he's famous for not paying his lawyers. So you can put those in either, any order you want to, but those are no's and no's to clients, to lawyers, sophisticated lawyers with real practices and real clients, real clients that pay, period. So he's this lawyer, I would bet, is you know somewhere at the bottom of the barrel scratching around and thrilled to represent Trump and sign any affidavit that says anything for him. How close are we to a prosecution of Trump or anyone else, for that matter, for violation of the Presidential Records Act? Because, and I ask this question because it sounds to me from what you're saying is there's a long way to go. This is not a criminal charge that is going to be dropped or an indictment that's going to be returned anytime soon, based on all that needs to be done in order to put a case together, if a case can be put together. Well, what we know now is that a federal judge in issuing the warrant made a finding that was probable cause of a crime. So that's a foothold, and they cite the statutes, including the Presidential Records Act. And the Espionage uh, Act. As hooks for charges in this case, in which probable cause has been found. So having kicked that off, you've now got to get from probable cause to compelling evidence, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Hard to do. We'll see. What's the next step from Merrick Garland's point of view? Well, I think conduct the investigation. Talk to get, figure out who knew about the boxes, where they were there, and have some people go through the boxes. I want to know what was in Trump's safe. There were certain pieces of evidence or records that were put in his personal safe. He, t he talked about that publicly. Who had the combination? What were those records? And if he, was, he had the combination and the records are incriminating in some way, if they're the atomic codes, the nuclear codes, then you go for it. Nuff, said, done, case closed, indict him and run with it. If it turns out they're love letters that he wrote to Stormy da Daniels, well, you know, and decided not to send, <laughs> but wanted to keep them for posterity. Not that interested. <laughs> kind so of. We'll find out what's in the safe. We'll find we'll out. See. Attorney John Pucci, thanks so very much for being with us. This has been a special edition of Crime and Punishment with Attorney John Pucci. Food Bank of Western Massachusetts is the region's largest hunger relief clearinghouse. They have been since 1982. They distribute fresh produce, including vegetables from 39 local farms, dairy, grains, and other nutritious foods to families and individuals facing hunger. The Food Bank is proud to partner with hundreds of food pantries, meal programs, and social service organizations to provide hunger relief in all four counties of Western Mass. Did you know that they also offer free SNAP outreach, helping anyone who needs support navigating the process of applying for federal food assistance. They also offer free bags of groceries through programs like the Mobile Food Bank, which hosts food distribution events at outdoor sites. Everyone is welcome to pick up food all year round. No ID or proof of need required. Learn more about the Food Bank at foodbankwma.org or by calling 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors in need have enough to eat. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock.